Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Gateway Rescue Mission, meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the homeless right here in Jackson, Mississippi. Check us out at www.gatewaymission.org. What's up on a Wednesday? I'm Brian Scott Riffey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Michael Borky. We appreciate you hanging out with us on this Wednesday, June 3rd edition of the Rebel Report podcast. We are getting breaking news stuff as we as we, as we record, and we were right before we hit the record button, we were trying to understand. So the NBA is kind of – they have a board of governors meeting uh, tomorrow, as in Thursday – to vote on a resume-to-play proposal, which, of course, because the NBA honestly has information leak probably more than any other league, and that's probably a testament to Woj and Shams, the two kind of headline reporters. But information seems to get out in the NBA more so than other leagues. NFL is probably up there. Chefs are pretty good as well. But point being, uh, you know it's going to be in the proposal before they go and vote on it because this information is coming out. We'll get to that in a second because the way it was worded was incredibly confusing. But uh, you're going to get a 22-team return with eight regular season games. Anyway, um, we've also got a lengthy interview with a uh, resident uh, degenerate and friend of the program, Andrew Stevens, uh, which uh, you know him from Armchair Media. We talked about college football for about 45 minutes, uh, just kind of shooting the shit, what's going on over there. Are we going to have fans in the stands? What's going to happen? Uh, so anyway, we got that going on. What's up? Man, not a whole lot. The little guy is napping. Our water heater broke, but it got fixed. So today, so far, not a bad day. The water heater breaking it got fixed today because it seems it like got that's pretty fixed good. today. It broke a couple days ago. So we we bought this is an old house. Uh, it was it's older than me, um, and. Nothing, knock on wood, is really broken so far in spite of its age. But a couple days ago, the water heater went out. And thank God, like two weeks ago, we renewed our home warranty. Our real estate agent, uh, so you haven't bought a house yet, so you may not know how this works. Apparently, it's like a courtesy for your real estate agent to get you uh, a year's worth of a home warranty. I didn't know we had it. I had no idea. Like, I, I, I must have missed the email or something. So I went a year living in a house not knowing I had a home warranty and paying for shit to get uh, fixed when the warranty would have covered it. But two weeks ago, I got an email from the company saying that the year's up and I need to renew. And I went ahead and renewed it. Water heater goes out like nine days later. I mean, say possibly saved me like a couple thousand dollars it's a 16 year old water heater though i mean it's just old but it's still kicking we're probably gonna have to get a new one he just did a temporary fix until we can get a new one but the warranty is going to cover it so my real estate agent and a your uh warranty's expiring email saved my ass man because i don't know how much water heaters cost but i know i don't have the money to pay for them Well, hopefully the patch job can last a while then. I don't yeah, know. Well, but the home warranty heat, so. covers the new water here. That's the thing. So, like, when it does finally go out, because of my real estate agent, um, I'm looking at one right now that's, they probably wouldn't buy this one, but $1,700. Oh, they're more like five, 600 bucks. I could afford that, I think. But my real estate agent saved my ass. And so I'm having a really good day. 
That's good. We got a bunch to get into today. We've got, as I mentioned, that lengthy interview with Andrew Stevens, where we just kind of shot the shit about SEC football, uh, masks, uh, tailgating, all kinds of stuff. Just uh, a lot of conspiracy theory type stuff. But uh, first, we got to get into this NBA stuff. So you have, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you have the NBA announcing, or not announcing, it is getting leaked, their proposal that the Board of Governors, which is the Board of Owners, because the NBA is a woke league and decided not to use the word owners anymore. So the owners are getting together to meet on a return-to-play proposal tomorrow, which is going to include 22 teams. Each of those teams are going to play eight games apiece for playoff seating, which I wonder, kind of sidebar here, we mentioned both te- all the teams being around the 62-63 game mark. I wonder if those eight regular season games is intentional to get them to the 70-game threshold for the regional TV contracts to kick in. Do you think so? Like, or is, has something been decided with that? I wonder if eight was intentional. I have not seen anything. I imagine eight's intentional. Uh, there, there's no way that... Um... But then again, it's only 22 teams, right? So, so how can you reach an agreement and a fulfillment with your regional sports networks if not the whole league is playing in the tournament? Well, if your regional sports networks, aren't they like kind of like, isn't their deal with the team as opposed to the whole league? So. Wait, like, yeah, no, you're right. You're exactly so right. I guess 22 teams having that agreement met is better than none. I, I don't know. I, I, no, that's a good point. No, I think I, man, I don't know, but I assume so. Uh, because like the T the teams navigate um, ra- their radio deals as well. Like I know New Orleans switched their radio partner to the ESPN station from I forget what they were on, uh, but that's a, a a negotiation that the team does uh, on our stations. Uh, by the way, there is a, a radio show that Rippy and I are on every day uh, from three to six. If you care to listen, um, eight of them are. They, eight of them broadcast Ole Miss games, and the rest of them uh, broadcast Mississippi State games. I believe it's five uh, broadcast Mississippi State games. And those are deals that the school and their uh, their property negotiates with us. Uh, so you would imagine that the television deal is the same, right? So I think your point's a really good one. Uh, you'd rather have 22 teams fulfill their agreements and make them happy and look, you weren't bringing back 30 teams. Apparently, according to, to Shams, uh, Michael Jordan was very outspoken in you can't bring a team back to play basketball games that are that are utterly meaningless. And his team, the New York Knicks, for example, would be playing uh, the Golden State Warriors meaningless basketball games. And you weren't going to bring them back to do it. So um, probably a combination of a lot of things, but I think your point is a good one, long-winded way to say I agree with you, that that's got to be it, is that they at least tried their best to satisfy as many people as they could while being practical. Yeah, and so you're going to get the eight-game season for eight-game regular season, finished to the regular season, I should say, for playoff seating. And this is where it got weird because Shams Sharania, who works for The Athletic and Watch Stadium, worded this. He's basically like Woj Jr., but he worded this terribly, which I'm not necessarily knocking him. I'm betting he's getting this information in real time from whomever he's talking to and trying to sort it out for himself. So I'm going to bet he didn't intentionally word it this way. But basically, you play eight games for seeding, and at the end of the eight games, if the eight seed and the nine seed are within four games of each other, the eight and nine seed play a series where the eight seed only has to beat the nine seed once, but the nine seed has to beat the eight seed twice if they want to jump into that playoff spot. 
But if the end at the at the end of the eight games, if the nine seed is more than four games back than the eight seed, then there is no play in series. The eight seed just gets the spot, if that makes sense. The way we got confused and the way it was kind of lost was he kept calling it a play in tournament. Yeah, so and that's not a tournament. Play in tournament was double elimination for the eight seed and single elimination for the ninth seed. But a tournament would imply that there's more than two teams in it. So I didn't understand what the hell was going on. But once that got clarified, it now makes sense and I think is actually a really good idea. Yeah, but Zach Lowe points out something. So Memphis has played 65 games, Portland 66, New Orleans and Sacramento 64, San Antonio 63. It's impossible for Memphis to exactly tie with anyone in real contention for the eighth seed. So what happens if Memphis finishes 35 and 38, New Orleans finishes 34 and 38? Does Memphis get the eighth seed by having one additional game? Oh, God. Um, I mean, I guess. Because there's no perfect way to do this. I mean, that kind of stinks. But, I mean, if it, if it comes down to just like a half of a game or whatever because they've only played with one game or whatever, couldn't you go to a tiebreaker, like head-to-head record? Like, couldn't you just consider that a tie? I don't know. Um, I think so, right? Because that I, – I, I would think so because that doesn't seem right. But I also don't suspect that – I mean, the difference between New Orleans and Memphis in those games is going to be – Three games. I mean, I don't. I don't think New Orleans is winning three more games than Memphis in eight games. Do you? So I mean, that scenario is kind of unlikely. Yeah, I, I think it is too. I just don't. I don't. I mean, it's certainly possible, though. I just. I don't. I don't know. And so, I, what I don't understand about this initially, and I know there's no perfect way to do this, and I generally like this plan. But the teams you're bringing back is one, presumably one from the East, the Washington Wizards. Yeah, and then uh, in real from- time, uh, this is so funny. We're recording a podcast while information comes out in real time. Uh, according to Woj, it will be the 16 teams currently in playoff contention, plus New Orleans, Portland, Phoenix, Sacramento, San Antonio, and Washington. So Washington is the only team from the East that will go. The thing is, though, you're playing an eight-game I guess I guess the like we talked about playing for the seven and eight seed on a couple of podcasts ago to give teams more incentive other than hey you're going to get crushed by you know the Bucks or the Lakers in the first round of the playoffs but the, they kind of did a different way of augmenting that where it's incentivizing teams to play for the nine seed to give yourself a chance at the playoffs to, whereas Phoenix is six games back from the Grizzlies like. 33 losses for the Grizzlies, 39 losses for the Suns. Roughly six games back. Actually, exactly six games back. They played the exact same amount of games. Whereas, obviously, how are you going to make up six games of ground in eight games? Not very likely. But they're only two games back of the nine seed. They have Portland has 37 losses and Phoenix has 39. That's definitely like like that's definitely plausible to be made up. So actually, that's an incredibly uh, incredibly uh, smart proposal by the NBA to incentivize all of the teams you're bringing back. Because if you just had Phoenix coming back to try to make up six games of ground in eight games, then you talk about pointless basketball. I guess it's not mathematically pointless. I wouldn't even bring Devin Booker with me if I was Phoenix and that was the city. I wouldn't even bring him. I I wouldn't do it. Exactly. Honestly, this has a chance to be compelling stuff because even if you're Phoenix, you make it all the way back to the nine seed. All you got to do is beat Memphis twice and you're in the playoffs. Yeah. 
And that's entirely possible. I, I think Memphis is good. I think Memphis is still going to emerge uh, out of this, but uh, it's entirely possible. And so you're going to have, oh gosh, eight uh, potentially, I don't know, 12, what, what is it, eight? Yeah, 12, 13, 14 games that are that are really meaningful and compelling with stuff on the line. Um, I'm, I'm in. I mean, it's not as cool as the group stage to me, but it, this works. Uh, the, what's going to be hilarious is the Eastern Conference side of this is because Washington is five games back of uh, five and a half, I guess, technically, because they played one less game. They're five games back of Orlando in the eighth seed. This doesn't really matter because it's kind of pointless. Like Washington is 24 and 40 and they're getting invited to it to this restart. And they're five games back of the Magic. But what's going to be funny is you have all this chaos going on in the West or the literally the only storyline in the East outside of the teams above them, I guess, jockeying for seeding, which will be important. Like that, We shouldn't underscore that part of it. But can Washington stay? Because they're not catching, making up five games of ground. Can they just force the play-in tournament? Can they get within that four-game threshold? Like that, To me, that just kind of underscores how bad the bottom of the East is. But the other kind of side of this that we haven't really discussed yet is this, this gives – Really, the one seed is out of reach on either side. Toronto is six games back in the lost column of the first seed Bucks, and the Clippers are six games back of the first seeded Lakers uh, in the lost column. But two through seven in the West is there is a better way to put it. Four through seven is really within four games of each other, and two through six is within eight games of each other in the East. So you have some chance, you have some chance for some playoff jockeying really in the East. It's probably mostly going to come from three through seven and kind of the same in the West. Really the West is going to be you know, two through four and then five through seven. I don't know. I mean, there's the difference between two and six in the West is four games. So like you've got to, my point being, it's a long winded and confusing way of saying it, but you've got some chance for some teams to have some playoff seating, but does the seating really matter if there's no home court? Uh, not really, only for matchups, I guess. Yeah, I guess and that's the gonna, one thing being devalued here. Play. I mean, maybe not take them super seriously, but I mean, if you're the Lakers, even though you don't have much to play for in the eight games, you still need to get your team back in game shape. I mean, they've been, they will have been away from each other for what, four months? So they're going to need to make sure that they've got everything clicking again, and it's going to take a few games to do that, I would imagine. So at least you're going to get uh, competitive games because they need to get themselves back into shape and, and do whatever it takes to make sure that they're clicking like they were before the shutdown happened uh, to, to get into form to win the playoffs. And you, your question about legitimacy as well, that when we've been going over these scenarios the last couple of weeks, this feels like the champion would be legitimate, right? Relatively speaking, the it's mo- this be is the weird, most but- likely. This is the most. This is the most conducive scenario environment and environment to crown a legitimate champion, given the circumstances. Now, if if Philly or like Indiana comes out of the East as a five or six seed in the finals. Like that doesn't feel that legitimate. The kind of the same thing as if Oklahoma City or God. The most perfect case for this would be the NBA champion Houston Rockets in 2020. It would be just absolutely hysterical with the whole small ball thing they had going and them just kind of on their last leg to where. It, but if you if it holds its chalk and you get Clippers Bucks 
Lakers, Bucks, I don't know, Clippers, Raptors, Lakers, Raptors, something like that, then it will 100% be considered legitimate. What's going to, the only thing, they, they basically eliminated all, excuse me, I've lost my train of thought there. They basically eliminated pretty much most of the ways this could feel illegitimate. The only way you could have it now is if some higher seed goes on some crazy run in this bubble environment. Yeah, I guess so. But I I agree with you that this is the most legitimate champion that they could possibly crown. Uh, I mean, the the group stage, I would have loved it because it would have been fun and compelling. But I I do agree with you that it would have felt gimmicky. And the the NBA Finals champion would have felt a little different than in years past. And it's still going to, but I agree with you. You are not... um, doing anything really out of the ordinary. You're giving teams that were within striking distance that were playing well to get a chance to make the playoffs because Memphis was getting healthy, and I don't think they were going to relinquish the eight seed, but it was really possible. I mean, New Orleans was playing well behind them. Uh, Portland was playing well behind them. Uh, I mean, even Sacramento was playing better. Uh, and Memphis's schedule was so tough, and they still had to see New Orleans, what, three more times? I mean... There was a real chance that it was going to be somebody else besides Memphis for the eight seed. So you give that a chance to play itself out. You're only inviting one team from the East because that playoff field is basically set. You give teams a chance to warm up and play and get ready and get their rhythm back. And then, boom, you have playoffs. It's perfect for what they're trying to accomplish. And credit to Adam Silver and the NBA for getting it done because I've missed it. And I cannot wait to get it back, even though I still have to wait another two months. But still, it's something. Yeah, and what's interesting is you're now trending to where you're going to have about three weeks to a month of baseball back and then get the NBA. So what we talked about is like hopefully now lining up in terms of like we're going to have a pretty solid fall sports season from now. Really from now until this time next year, if everything goes as planned, you'll have the MLB in July, NBA in July, that'll take you through football season. Then you kind of get back to your normal sports calendar, culminating with the NBA finals next year, which could, I say this time next year, it's definitely the finals aren't going to be in June because they're not starting the season on time. This could technically, depending on what the NBA decides to do with their off season and like where, when they want to start their season, I guess is a better way to say that this could potentially be the end of any sort of dead period in sports, the July, August, where there's nothing on, but baseball and you're just kind of waiting and taking a lot till football season. If all this takes shape is this could potentially be the end of that. There could be no more dead period. Oh, that's going to be awesome. And they've needed to do it for a long time. I've never understood why the NBA actively chooses to compete with football for, even though it's the first part of their season and the NBA is kind of like baseball. I know the season is half the length, but there are times where it feels like not every game matters. I mean, when you've got a schedule that comes with the phrase schedule loss, meaning like there's been too much travel and you've had too many games in a certain amount of time. And so there's a night where you just sit a couple guys and if you lose, so be it because it's not a big deal. Like when that exists, you have probably too many games. So the beginning of the NBA season is very much like baseball after opening day. Yeah, the games are on, the diehards watch every night, but it doesn't feel like there's a sense of urgency because there's so many games that are played. Even with that being the case, never understood why they choose to compete with football for two months. I just don't get it. You're an afterthought. You start in October and nobody gives a shit. I mean, people, 
like call Christmas Day the unofficial start of the NBA season. And you're two months into your season and then some. So doing this, I mean, a blessing in disguise with the coronavirus for the NBA is forcing that issue that a lot of people have raised over the years. Start on Christmas, stop competing with football, and to your point, no more dead period. No more summer where there's only midseason Major League Baseball. And purists aside, that's not a whole lot. So now you have at least something else. The calendar is going to be great moving forward. And uh, I said it on the radio yesterday. This fall is going to be incredible with everything that's happening all at once. Yeah, it is. Let's take a break real quick and remind you, podcast brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. You know the deal at this point. Greg's awesome. It's grilling season. Weather's getting better, or I say weather has been great, and hopefully is getting better. Uh, go check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. I got the tri-tips the other weekend, some uh, ribeye sausage. It was absolutely fantastic. Go check him out for yourself. I promise you it's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. He's got grill packs, Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special, eight- and six-ounce bacon wrap fillets. Just absolutely delicious, all kinds of sausage. Uh, go check him out. I promise you won't regret it. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Oh, and ask him why he went 500 on his UFC picks. He's supposed to be a money-making machine. But we're going to buy a horse together as a podcast. I don't think – you can't eat horse, can you? Not in America. You cannot. You can okay. in France, I think, and, like, you have to put, like, a, a wooden bust of a horse outside of your restaurant. That might be a myth that I just saw on Twitter, but, yeah. Oh, I have to ask Greg about that. I don't think you're going to buy any horse burgers or whatever over there, but he's got plenty of other stuff. Go check him out. <laughs> what an ad read. Across <laughs> from Kroger. So go see Greg. You can't get a horse sweet, but you can get anything else. <laughs> anyway. Print the T-shirts, Greg. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, Greg does not condone any of that. He likes to, he likes to wager on horse racing. Um, but he is just he sells other kinds of meat. Anyway, that was probably the worst ad read of all time. Who cares? Let's get to our interview real quick with Andrew Stevens, and then we'll come back and close this thing up. We talked about all kinds of stuff, pretty much SEC football, and we'll kind of hit on a couple of the topics that me and Andrew hit uh, once we get done. But without further ado, Armchair Media's deadbeat father, as he describes it, Andrew Stevens. All right, we now welcome back on friend of the program, uh, resident Louisiana degenerate and now full-time uh, father of armchair All-Americans, Andrew Stevens. What's up, dude? What's going on, Rip? I, uh, I've i been missing you and been missing talking some, some football normalcy. I, I know, dude. I uh, Not much over here. 2020's been the greatest year of my life. How about yours? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> other than uh, I, I was about to say some, some mild professional game. I'd say one step forward professionally, like 11 steps backward personally, socially, spiritually, all these things. So, But other than that, we're hanging in there. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, I feel like the older you get, like the more serious you get about, like, I don't know if it's like actually New Year's resolutions, but like for whatever reasons, when like the year resets, you're like, all right, I'm going to get this, this, and this done this year, and I'm going to be better about this. And I feel like all that went out the window by like March, just because it, like by the end of March, I was like, "What the hell is going on?" Like, I, I, like it was almost comical. Like you couldn't parody this year in a book. No, and, and I think, I mean, post college, like college, you kind of get two resets because you get you get the beginning of each semester, and so you can kind of, uh, if you abandon your New Year's resolution uh, six weeks in, like everyone normally does, then you can sort of pick it back up. In, in August as opposed to the start of the year again. But 
this year is sort of just once you get post college, I think you hit the end of the year and you're like, all right, let's let's try and let's try and put at least you're just trying to get incrementally better. We're not we're not trying to be worse than the than the previous year and. I can pretty confidently say that we're pretty worse than 2019 already. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and make that proclamation. <laughs> I don't think that's a whole lot of a leap. I mean, between a global pandemic, you know, everything that's happened in the past week with police brutality and just kind of the the entire country burning. I mean, it's crazy. It's like we had a global, and I understand why. But like, if you watch the news cycle, this year has been so nuts. It's like we had a global pandemic that really no one's ever seen. Like, really, no one's ever lived through unless you're pushing a hundred and lived through the whole you know Spanish flu deal. That shit kind of sounded like a bummer. But outside of that, it was completely unprecedented. And then it all completely goes by the wayside because something more insane happened this week. I mean, it's it's like, what the hell is going to happen by November? I mean, this is an election year, too, which is kind of frightening. Oh, well, I mean, maybe. At this yeah, point. no kidding. <laughs> the, someone, said, uh, someone said Corona blew a 28-3 lead to racism, and I, uh, <laughs> I, th- I think that uh, I think that's all, all but accurate. I know, I mean... It, We've, we've, we've been really barreling towards a path of, like, not really being able to quantify anything that happens in the news even, like, 36 hours out, and this is, like, the exact same thing. And something that I'm re- really interested to see is in the sports world, like, sports are supposed to be coming back amidst all this, and I don't particularly see any of this slowing down anytime soon. So, like, I feel like when we hop online, it's going to be these, like, weird dueling social media feeds of like people trying to stay active but like people that we follow and the people that like we work with like just also trying to do their jobs and like people want to know what's happening with zion and the pelicans or who's going to start for Ole miss this year but like it's also like it's going to be weird parsing those between videos of watching peaceful protesters get tear gassed yeah, so that's a good that's a good segue, but let's jump even more forward and then go backwards. Let's go football first and then let's talk like actually these if baseball can not stop tripping over its own, you know what, and see if the NBA comes back. Let's go football first cuz it's been fascinating is particularly in the south where everyone's just like absolutely batshit crazy over college football. It kind of went from March being like is this really that serious? Is this going to affect football? Like I don't know to mid-April being like I don't think football is going to happen to these dudes are coming on campus this week to start voluntary workouts, you know, a week from now. It looks like football was going to happen. Like, and I always kind of figured that just because of the amount of money on the line and really just kind of throwing anything morally or honestly in some ways safety out the window. I just figured there was too much money at stake. What was like your roller coaster of emotions regarding whether college football was happening or not? Yeah, I think I think you hit the timeline right there in that like over the last week, maybe ten days, it really has felt like this push of like, oh shit, like we don't really care about the precautions or the warning signs. Like this is a monetary decision that's getting made. And it's interesting because you can't really divorce that notion from the kids going back to at like the actual kids going back to campus. So like um I I, I recently started working full-time for the company that 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 you and i had previously worked with in college but the i'm or my my previous job was the athletic director at a school and so like they still don't know if they're going to be back in school starting in the fall and i mean that goes from literally kindergarten all the way through college right now and so colleges operate as a business so if you can't put kids back on campus 
it's going to be hard to have football back on campus, but it seems that if football is going to be back on campus now, that's almost predicating the decision that you have to bring students back, which, I mean, that seems a little bit crazy in and of itself, but you're going to have kids that take gen ed classes through community college, that, that take gap years, that do other stuff. If they say, I'm not paying... I'm not paying out-of-state tuition to go take a class online that I may have to retake in the future. And so um, w- when, you, when you sit there and look at that, I-, I think the decision has become inevitable that you are going to have football this year. Now, the, the presence of fans, I have no idea, because football is interesting because there's enough money in TV to where it doesn't really matter. But I, I, I talked to my brother, and, and I'm still in Baton Rouge, and so, I mean, talk of the town is, is LSU football at all times, especially the last year. Um, and so what do you think is going to happen in terms of the way that fans operate? Because I think you have either no fans there, full capacity, and they say public safety measures and public health be damned, or you have some weird individual socially distanced government governor decision where it's uh, can you have half the fans there can you have 20 percent of the fans there if you can only have twenty-two thousand people in tiger stadium who gets those tickets so like there is just an absolute insane can of worms that this is going to open up yeah and i don't know it's almost like the same roller coaster to where i went well they'll probably have football but i don't really see fans in the stands just because i mean even the the stands aside, like seeing eighty thousand people in the Grove just you know a month ago seemed unrealistic. It doesn't necessarily seem realistic now, but like you've come out and you've had all these athletic directors. Like I saw Iowa State put was kind of the first to put out a plan, and it was like, well, we're gonna have our season ticket holders, and that's thirty thousand, and like a I think their stadium's like sixty five seventy, and like you think, well, that that kind of makes sense, but like does that include students? And then you have uh, what's his face at Arkansas? His name is just escaping me. At the, uh, Jeff Long, I think, or is he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Old, our, our old uh, CFP guy. Yeah. yeah. And then it was like, we plan to have full capacity in the September. And it's like, whoa, bro, like, like where are you getting that from? Like, I just yeah. – I, I don't know. I, 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 I think anyone that says they know at this point is probably just full of it. But it does seem to be trending in the last little bit, unless there's like a spike that comes in the next month or so and this gets worse. It does seem to be trending that we're probably getting fans in the stands in some capacity. Like, if you made me wager on it – Three weeks ago, I would probably wagered on no fans, as weird as a look that is in college football, to where now I think you're going to get fans in some capacity. I just don't know how. And see, this is interesting because, I mean, I've tried to do all I can. I mean, I work from home, and so I really don't have any excuses to be going out and doing things other than going to the grocery store and and just pretty mundane stuff. And so I I feel like I've I've done as good of a, a job as I can reading up on, all right, how is this stuff transmitted? What are the possible preventative measures? I mean, generally just trying to be socially responsible about it. And from everything I've seen, it, it, it seems that masks are, like, the the number one sort of discernible factor of, like, this is the number one preventable, or preventable like, communicable disease. If, you, if 80% of people are wearing masks, we're able to decrease the R0 value or whatever. These are all math terms I'm not really sure about. But essentially, it just means cases are going to start declining if we can reach that. And so between that and people being outside, I think that the, the math is, or, or the, the science is generally, that is a lot better than people being in close quarters, people being exposed to each other, people uh, not having coverings between their faces. 
But my so, so with, with that being said, I think there is then a scenario if cases continue to decline or, or you're in some sort of socially distant stadium where, all right, Tiger Stadium that holds 102,000 can have 40,000 people in there because you can put people in every third seat. You can mandate them wearing masks if they want to go into the stadium. You can limit it to season ticket holders, yada, yada, yada. I think your questions are, all right, well, how do you sell water at a football game because people have to take off their masks to eat and drink? Are you going to open campus to tailgating because – uh, tailgating, you could technically tailgate socially distanced outside with masks, but the, you, uh, of all people, especially at Ole Miss, you know that's not the way it is. I mean, it's people on top of each other sharing food and drinks, and so, I mean, that is what a lot of tailgating is. And the people that are spending, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 grand a year on their tailgate typically aren't the people that line up with the I'm going to do this thing for other people in public health and public safety. You just nailed the last part because that's kind of where I was trending to. Like even tailgating aside, if you make it a requirement to wear masks in the games, like are you going to have people abide by it or are you going to have you're not taking away my liberties guy stage some kind of protest in the stadium which is just going to be a disaster? Because like so Oxford and it's easier to get away with this here because it's a smaller town. The mayor was very proactive and as soon as like like, like even when essential businesses were only open, you had to wear a mask to get in anywhere, like gas station, wherever. And to where it's like, personally, I'm not a huge fan of it just because I don't like a face covering, but like I'm going to wear it because I understand the value of it and like the safety thing. And after a while, I kind of got used to it. It's honestly like the norm going in to buy like a six pack of beer. It's like, I got to throw my mask on. But like also like you like not everyone is like that like you're gonna have guy that walks into walmart and makes a scene about you know anarchy or the government taking away all his rights or whatever because he has to wear a facial covering like do you think you could get that many people to like kind of abide by it like maybe if you dangle football out there as the carrot and it's like hey you're not watching football if this doesn't like if you don't have a face mask maybe like maybe that's the one thing it would make people listen i don't know but it kind of seems unlikely I, I do think that if there is anything in Mississippi or Louisiana that is going to make people give a shit about public health, it is the threat of them not being able to watch football in person. But I will say, I think the issue that you're going to run into is, all right, you walk into the stadium with a mask on. I mean, I sit on the or my, my, my parents' season tickets, and whenever I go, are on the east side of Tiger Stadium. The east side of Tiger Stadium, if you play a 2.30 game, is where the sun is beating down on. I cannot imagine on September 8th or whatever that you're going to you're gonna have a bunch of 45-year-old guys that are wearing masks in 93-degree heat, or they wear them in and then they take them off immediately, and then, you are, and then you're forced to task some security guard that you're paying less than $100 that day to tell about to get into a bunch of people's faces or in their personal space and say you need to put your mask on or we're going to remove you. And so 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 then you you deal with this this large issue of policing inside the stadium once you actually get it. And so it, it's like are they going to do it and if they do it how much are they actually going to enforce it because again you then run into a situation if you have 40,000 people in the stands that is still more people than we have had together since, like, the NBA got shut down. So then what happens week six when you start having a spike in cases, or if you start having a spike in cases because people are now now together a little bit more? Does the season get canceled? What, like, like, 
that that's the the one I'm more concerned with. And maybe if it's just a monetary thing, they they're saying, all right, we can milk six six weeks of TV revenue as opposed to none, and we'll shut it down when we have to shut it down. But the the mid season contingency plans are something that I don't think they're thinking of right now. I think they're thinking of how do we get this started, but not how do we finish it. Yeah, I agree. And as far as the the kind of getting it started, like there was a lot of like I didn't necessarily buy a ton of the pushback in bringing the players back on campus because I tend to decide more in the camp that hey, like if they're on campus in those monstrosity of football facilities with that kind of medical care, they're actually probably more inclined and more safe to kind of be be not sterilized, but kind of removed from being susceptible to getting it to whereas if they're just off at home or even in the in the college town and just not being able to be around the facility you're probably more likely 18 21 year old kid to go around and do something to contract it so and like while there was no real like uniformed answer on the testing thing it seems like most schools have it like kind of kind of remotely under control while even if there might maybe not a concrete idea of how the testing is going to go long term but so, like, I don't think the logistics of actually getting teams on the field and stuff is actually a hell of a lot more plausible than the fan stuff. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that because I, I think from from everything I've seen from the NBA down to a lot of major colleges that can afford it, the access to testing becomes just optics. Like the so that night, the, whenever March 11th, whenever the NBA got shut down, it was something like all 60 members of the Jazz and the Thunder or whatever like got tested in their staffs and, and people were upset about it. And optically, it does look bad that you have like 2,000 tests that have been run in the country up to that point and 60 of them are being given to millionaire NBA players who ultimately probably aren't going to get that sick from it. But you, you, then, you then run into this, this weird situation of the tests have always been accessible based on our healthcare system if you want to pay for them. So, like, if the NBA wants to procure 20,000 tests to do their bubble facility and test LeBron James 45 times in a month, they can do that. It's just how is this going to look if nurses are still strapping trash bags to their face and trying to treat patients. And so I think it's one of those things where as much as you're willing to bear the brunt of the optics, and I do think the optics begin to look better as we get as we go further out, increase testing, and hopefully numbers continue to decrease, I think then those optics become more acceptable for the public and more acceptable for, for these leagues uh, like the NCAA and, and, and the NBA. But I still do think that the only issue you're running into right now with actually bringing them back is, all right, is our state being hit hard? Like in New York, I think it would be tough right now to bring back stuff while you're still having that many people die and are hospitalized because of corona. Assuming all of that aside, like on the field stuff, which is going to be wild because like in terms of storylines going into the year, like so much of it is going to be what we just spent 15 minutes talking about to where it's like, honestly, the on-field storylines are going to be weirdly secondary. And in college football, particularly the SEC, a lot of them are predictable. But like on-field-wise, like – Georgia, like you're obviously pretty close to Georgia, uh, given your history, where you went to school and all that. Is there an actual real fear of Florida at all this year in terms of closing the gap and kind of overtaking it? Because that seems to be kind of like your manufactured storyline of the offseason, you know, global pandemic removed. Yeah, see, it, it, it's weird because it, it's all, I, just with Georgia specifically, 
it's hard to remove the pandemic storyline from the season because of the way, because of the new talent coming in. Like, Georgia's supposed to have a grad transfer quarterback who didn't get a spring camp to come in. Now, granted, I would prefer a guy who has been a multi-year starter come in and generally get the handle of an offense, but we have a new offensive coordinator that's coming in, too, and so... I think the talent is there for Georgia to to like. I think Georgia still has the most talent in the SEC East, and I think that given the last three years and the way that that Kirby has performed against Mullen recently, I think it's one of those situations where yeah, I'm generally going to believe that Georgia is going to be better than Florida until Florida actually beats them. And I know that's kind of a, a little bit of a dumb point, but I mean, I, it's been three decisive of enough victories in a row right now to where if Florida comes in and this is the year that they sort of they sort of put a, a chip in Georgia's SEC East armor, I could see it, but it's not something that, that I'm anticipating happening. But then again, if Georgia's trying to put in a passing attack right now and they can't get that timing down because they lost 11 spring practices and they may be having some shortened off-season program to, to try and fit things in medically or, uh, or, or in a public health sense, then, um, then no. I mean, they're, they're susceptible to – the schedule's not crazy this year, but they're definitely susceptible to lose to Auburn. They're definitely susceptible to lose to Florida. I don't think they're going to lose to a Tennessee or a Virginia or someone like that. But, I mean, it's, not, it's definitely not a guaranteed 11-1 and like the last three regular seasons have been. That's been kind of the debate here with Le- in this state because you have Leach and Kiffin both inheriting new programs and not having the spring and all of that. And like it's like one of the big discussions on our radio show has been like, does this count as year one or is this really a year zero? And I, I think it's going to be a year five because you know crazy ass fans played the results anyway to where they stink. Like, it's going to be like, all right, well, whatever. He didn't have an offseason, big transition. Like, it's kind of year zero, which, honestly, there's probably a lot of truth to that. But if they have success or whatever, it's going to be like a year point five to where if there's like a six, like if they're better than expected, it's going to be like, like the expectations are going to rise just as if it were normal overachieving in year one. So that's going to be fascinating to me because, like, Honestly, particularly in State's case, like Mike Leach with the grad transfer quarterback, crappy wide receivers, implementing that kind of change from what State used to run to an air raid in the SEC with no spring ball, like, to me, that's tough. That's like, oh, God, good luck. Like, like they're both going to struggle, I think, because of all this, but, like, State seems to really be in a year zero because how the hell do you throw an air raid in with no spring? Well, and you're throwing an air raid into a defense that is never really, or to a coach who has never really prioritized defense in a school that has kind of been depleted on the defensive side of the ball since Mullins left. And so uh, you really are, you re- like, I, I, I mean, just us growing up as, as SEC fans, it, it's, generally, it's generally thought that your defense is going to be the more solid or the, like a quality defense is going to be a, no, a more known quantity than a quality offense, just especially in the SEC. And so I think that if you're looking at a state or a case like Mississippi States where they don't really know what they have on defense right now and they sure as shit don't know what they have on offense just because, I mean, Mike Leach is, is supposed to be almost antithetical to everything that is run in the SEC and not completely, not completely different than, than what he's inheriting from Moorhead, but definitely, uh, definitely a different spread concept, and definitely a different uh, a, a a lot more optionality in the passing game. 
the West in general just kind of feels like out. Like, unfortunately, and I hope I'm wrong with this, but it kind of feels like you're transitioning to back to one of those years where it's kind of Alabama and everyone else. Like, I think I know O's recruited very well, and like honestly, like it shouldn't be a shocker to anyone that's followed his career. I mean, look, he recruited well enough for Houston Nutt to go to back-to-back Cotton Bowls at Ole Miss after he left. But that said, given everything they lost, and particularly with the whole Burrow thing just kind of becoming a transcendent star and having one of the best seasons ever, I think it's unrealistic for them to expect them to contend at that level again. And it took that level of a team to knock off Alabama. I don't really buy Auburn as much, and I don't really. I kind of feel the same way about A and M. Do you think the West is kind of Alabama and everyone else? Because it unfortunately sort of feels that way again. Yeah, I, I really do, and, and I think people are annoyed by that narrative because it's boring. I mean, because if if you look at it, Bama lost to one of the best teams in the history of college football and then lost to Auburn without Tua. And so, I mean, you're still looking at a team that is one of the top five teams in the country, regardless if you're, you're seeing that second loss or, or the number two in the loss column at the end of the year. And so I, I think with them, they are – I mean, with Mac, Mac Jones being established and coming in, I mean, with their wide receiving core, with what, I mean, it's, it, it's an absolute machine. And so while this might not be the best team that Saban has had, I think this is the best team that, uh, in terms of, I think this is one of the bigger talent gaps between Alabama and the rest of the West. LSU is an interesting case because you have half of their fan base right now is completely okay with not winning a game for the next three seasons. I mean, they are, they are, drunk and coasting off of what they witnessed last year. And, I mean, to be completely honest, I would probably be okay for a, for two full seasons if I got to watch what they did in 2019. But there's another half of the fan base that is, uh, it would be like you slap their mother in the face saying that Miles Brennan can't lead LSU to at least 11 wins this next year. And so I, I think it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. I think LSU probably has like a 10-2 and two regular season maybe a 9-3 and three regular season, maybe 11-1 and one if things break right. But, I mean, playing Bama, Florida, Auburn, uh, Texas, I, I think that's going to be tough to, to, to go better than 10-2 and two at. Um, and then A&M, I've got no idea. I mean, I, I equate Mullen and Jimbo, I think, sort of as, as, as counterweights on either side of the conference. I think both of them are interesting from what they do in recruiting. I think they have – uh, interestingly capable programs and brand names, but I mean, on like a, just a fundamental level, I just don't believe in either one of them as head coaches on like the highest level. Now, granted, I know that Jimbo has won up to this point, but getting a blank check at Florida State and being able to push anything under the rug that you want, I think is a little bit different of, of a, a modus operandi than most coaches operate on, even in the SEC where it's a little bit lawless. Um, and so I, I think Jimbo and Mullen will remain threats in the future, but nothing more than a nine and three. Maybe they make a run and win win the the division at, at like a ten and two one year. But I don't see them as establishing consistent dominance. And in the in the ways they do it too, they're kind of opposites to where Jimbo, like hell of a recruiter, but can he actually build it on the field and win, like win in the SEC West on like a Saturday? To whereas Mullen, I think in game you would take him against just about anyone in the country, but can he actually use the like what he has at Florida to recruit at a high enough level to win an SEC Eastern National Title? Like it's almost like they're opposites of each other in that sense, but it's kind of similar results, and you'd probably take both of them, 
But yeah, that is fascinating because I don't buy the A&M thing. But looking at their schedule, it kind of sets up for like a mid-October Texas A&M storyline. And then, which you had a lot under someone and then just kind of had ridiculous collapses late in the year because those teams were kind of soft. But that could be a fascinating storyline because looking at their schedule, they could start 6-7-0 and kind of leading into mid-October, which would be pretty wild. And then, But if you get beat by Alabama by three touchdowns, then it's just kind of like, here we go again. I was about to say, I, I feel like that is going to be the exact narrative that we end up seeing where it's like, oh, could this, could this be the A&M that, that we've always seen? And it's like 6-0, and they had one impressive win over a team that ended up not being that good at the end of the year, and then they get into October, go 3-3 three and three with like two embarrassing losses and end up in the Capital One Bowl or whatever, whatever they call Citrus Bowl now. And so, like, I, I, again, I don't – that's solid for what A&M has been in the past and what they are historically, but that is not solid for 75 mil guaranteed. You mentioned the split in the fan base with LSU, which is kind of fascinating to me because from O's perspective, like him doing what he did last year and kind of defying the odds because everyone I think thought he was going to fail miserably, like he's got a chance, like he'll always be like Louisiana's favorite son for what he was able to do and like that whole national title but he's got a chance if he kind of keeps this thing at a national championship level or so for the next half decade or 10 to 10 years he's got a chance from like this guy will always be a legend down here to there will be a statue in every town for 100 plus years if he would god forbid he wins another one but he keeps this at like a national title playoff type level for the next five to seven years Oh, yeah. I mean, if he wins another title, he will be the best LSU coach in, in school history, which is insane to think. I mean, I, heck, if he wins another SEC title and not another national title, he's still probably in that conversation just because, I mean, what I, I don't think people realize a whole lot. When Saban was here, he won an Addy, but that was the only season that he didn't lose at least three games or three or more games. And then Miles was solid, but the way that he ended his career here was, was I mean, he, he left with a whimper, left with a loss at Auburn. Actually, that was the weekend we were in Oxford together way back way back when. Was, That's was exactly right. <laughs> Les ended up getting fired. Um, but, no, no, I, I, think that, I, I think that they are in a situation, and O is in a unique situation, um, where, no, it, it, it's, it's no longer sort of just like, the prodigal son it's funny he's our guy he got lucky it's like no this is this is becoming this is like a historic yeah a historically good sec coach yeah, and the, like the level he's recruiting at, like honestly, to, like he's kind of a testament to where if you learn and you're remotely shrewd as a strategizer, just in general, these programs like LSU, Alabama, Georgia, kind of like drive themselves as long as you're not completely incompetent in one area. So like he's kind of done a good job of just managing the whole thing. He's a hell of a recruiter. Kind of stayed. He finally, after two offensive coordinators, seemed to kind of stay the hell out of the way, and it's kind of just driving itself. See, I, I, I think you, you mentioned two perfect things there where you said you said he manages well and he finally got out of the way. And I think that's becoming a big thing with a lot. I mean, Clemson is the absolute perfect prototype for it. Dabo is the CEO of that football program. He is not the football coach. I mean, ben, I, I mean not, not anymore, but a, a guy like Chad Morris when he was there and especially a guy like Venables there, those are the guys that, that make that program tick. Those are the guys, I mean, it, it's been seemingly through him and through O that if you have the resources at that school, now you have to have the budget. And, and 
I think A&M's doing a little bit of the same, but I think they did the inverse. You go get that coach that you want, and then you say, as much staff as you need, as much facility help as you need, as much recruiting budget as you need, you have. Go get the top, go get the top assistants in the country and figure something out here. And now, granted, I'm, I'm interested to see how LSU does on their Aranda replacement, but, I mean, if you can come out, when O was hired, he wanted to bring Lane in as his, his OC, and he, he wasn't able to get it because of the FAU job. So I think he does have an actual commitment to, I'm, I'm humble enough to recognize that this is not my area of expertise. I'm going to get out of the way, and you saw the result. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And in some ways, as crazy as it sounds, like his, like, prowess or like I don't know respectability is not the right word I feel like if he wins 10 games this year with that much turnover losing that many starters it's kind of like okay this guy is here to stay it's almost like you'll find out about more about him as a coach than you did a year ago which sounds insane but in some ways it makes sense no it really I mean I'm being being able being able to to repeat it and it's obvious going 15 to no is not a fluke no, but there are certain there are certainly people who are making Gene Chizik comparisons right now, and so that's a good example. Now, and, and so he's now in this position to, all right, I don't need to go eight and five. I mean, Gene, two years after that, Natty went three and nine, and so I mean that 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 is a historic drop off. But yes, I mean if O somehow like if they drop one, if they lose to Texas, Auburn, Florida, and Bama this year, which again. You can lose all those games by a combined 15 points and your season be drastically different. And so I think, I think winning 10 games this year, like 10 regular season games, go into, I don't know, the Fiesta Bowl or whatever. Like if they did what they did the year before the national championship. So like if they go Fiesta Bowl win, national championship, Fiesta Bowl win, like that's a pretty damn good three-year stretch. Yeah, I mean, really no one else in the country outside of Alabama, Clemson, and, like, Ohio State is doing that. Like, you're on that level at that point, and that's a that's a hell of a lot better way to articulate it. Is he kind of Gene somewhere? Like, where on the Gene Chiswick to uh, Dabo and Saban scale does exactly. he fall? And it's going to be exactly. somewhere in the middle, but it's like, where does he fall on that? Because I don't think he's not – the way he's recruiting, he's not Gene Chiswick. But – it's also a hell of a lot harder to get to the Dabo Saban level. Where does he fall? That's going to be fascinating. The last thing before I let you get out of here, Egg Bowl, everyone talks about how fascinating it's going to be. You've got kind of a different tone to the rivalry now. It's always interesting to me to get like an outsider's perspective that doesn't cover, doesn't care at all about either program because it's just been like – it's almost like a second Thanksgiving meal. Like you eat the lunch or dinner or whatever, and then you just get this drunken debauchery on television for three hours. Like, what? Like, are you looking forward to the Egg Bowl? Because the teams aren't going to be very good, but it's going to be on. It's going to be on Thanksgiving night, and you have the Pirate and Lane Kiffin on the sidelines. So it, it's interesting because my family is all, uh, not all, but a large portion are LSU and Texas A&M fans. And so Thanksgiving was, has previously, just in my family's history, been dominated by either LSU or Texas A&M playing in those games. But in the last, like, three or so years since they haven't, it has been Egg Bowl at 7 o'clock during, during Thanksgiving. And I feel like that has been just about the right times to have watched the previous three or four Egg Bowls. Because... I have never seen – I'll say this. I recommend that that uh, that foul play, Stephen Godfrey doc, yeah. to 
just about anyone I can oh, oh, from the sole per, like fact of like you know about Ohio State, Michigan. You know about you know about uh, the Iron Bowl. Like you know about the Texas Texas A and M history. Like Ole Miss Mississippi State, in terms of passion of a rivalry, is a bigger rivalry. I mean, it's they insanity. don't have professional. They don't have professional. This is the professional sports team. This is the college sports team. Like these are feuds that have boiled over since high school and since the fucking eighteen hundreds at this point. Sorry if I curse, but like I, we, like like it's a position where I I don't know if I can quantify the egg bowl to people that haven't grown up in SEC football. And even to some of the people that have grown up in SEC football, I'm born and raised in Baton Rouge and went to University of Georgia. Like, I know SEC football, but, like, there are still people that are, like, that, that don't understand the the severity of the Egg Bowl. Uh, like, I, it really is truly, like, the severity of the Egg Bowl and the importance of the Egg Bowl. It's, and it's, like, not necessarily the, like, as two athletic directors of each program, it's not necessarily the look you want to go for, but unfortunately, given a number of different circumstances that I we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, but I don't have time to go into today, it's the way it is. It's like Alabama-Auburn if Alabama and Auburn only cared about destroying one another and absolutely nothing else. And so that's why yeah. it, it, it's for all those years, it was like uh, Iron Bowl is the biggest rivalry in the SEC, and everyone in this state's kind of like, well, you sure? Have you seen what these two do to each other? And Hugh Freeze and Dan Mullen kind of finally brought it to a level to where people actually realize, oh, these people are insane and they hate each other, which, again, not the look you're going for on terms of national branding, but unfortunately, that's just the way it's devolved into. And, and the interesting thing just about the way that those two programs have sat sort of historically, or at least in modern college football history, you have all of the, like, I hear I, I, on the, whatever, the Bo Knows and all of these other different sort of SEC story documentaries, you, you hear about these rivalries and they're like, if we would go, I, I would be happy every year if we went 1-11, but that one win was over Bama. And it's like, no, you wouldn't be. You fire, like, if you would have gone in 2012, if you would have gone 4-8 and eight but beat Bama, you would have still fired Gene Chizik. But in the Egg Bowl, I truly do believe that those fans think if we go 1-11 and 11, but beat Ole Miss 58-17, to 17, that is a successful season. <laughs> it's unfortunately true, and probably why they can't ever get out of their own way. But I don't know. It's going to be a wild season, dude. I, I mean, I don't uh, Rip, I have one one final question to I think tie together all of these schools that we've been talking about because we've touched on LSU, Georgia, Ole Miss, Florida, Texas A and M. Is there one common thread that you can think of those schools? One particular name: Texas A and M, Florida, Georgia, and who? LSU and Ole Miss. The the name I'm thinking of is Zach Evans. Oh, God. And then he ends up at TCU. And then he ends up at TCU. That is probably the most insane insane recruiting cycle of one player that I've ever seen in my life. I know. He makes Leo Lewis look buttoned up. But, like, it was oh. – it, it's insane. Like, I, and you had the, the the crazy Georgia Twitter guy who I think was still trolling people and just kind of doing his – 
I think he was doing an Alex Jones impression in sports. I won't be convinced. I think otherwise. it was. I, I think it was in the. I think it was. In, if it wasn't an elaborate bit, that guy needs. There needs to be a social experiment <laughs> yeah, on, on him. No kidding. Or someone needs to be watching him at all times. But yeah, I mean, for for like our niche here isn't really covering recruiting, but obviously around signing day we do, and you generally try to keep up with it. But it was so incredibly annoying to constantly get questions about that kid because even the people that kept up with recruiting had no idea. It was insanity. I know, and it really, like, I mean, since I stopped working for, for like, the Georgia Beat, I haven't really, like, I keep up with the big the big recruits around the country just by being on Twitter and stuff. But, like, I really wasn't plugged into to his recruitment at all. And it was like, oh, shit, he's about to come to Georgia. And it was like, oh, he's decommitted from Georgia. It was like, no, actually, he wanted to come to Georgia, and they didn't accept his, his uh, financial aid papers. And then he's at Florida, and then he's at Ole Miss, and he's coming to LSU. Now it's at... It, it really is like I mean, Derek Brown, Laramie Tunsil, like absolute it, peak SEC behavior, and then he doesn't even end up in the SEC. It's it's it, it, yeah. I mean, it, to, to talk about your SEC recruitment, like put that in a book. But yeah, dude, crazy stuff. It's going to be a wild season. I feel like I always have to put the qualifier if we have one. That's kind of like the running joke on the radio show. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's I think it's happening. I hope there's fans in the stands, you know, if you can do it remotely safely. But a lot of actual fascinating storylines, dude. This was fun as always. Before you go, though, plug armchair again. Because uh, you're no longer yeah. – you've gone from deadbeat father to guy who's got – like, like how would you describe your relationship with it now? You've gone from My, deadbeat uh, father to uh, I'm putting him through yeah, college. That, I was about to say, yeah, now, now financially responsible, <laughs> I, I would say. Um, yeah, back, back, back in their lives providing, uh, <laughs> providing financial aid. But, um, yeah, so we're actually, so we're on, uh, we are on, uh, our website is armchairmedianetwork.com. Instagram and Twitter is at armchairmedia. And then actually, so since we just got a big sponsorship deal, we are doing, uh, we're doing two scholarship offers now. So therefore basically aspiring young black creatives in some sort of creative field. So it could be writing, photography, journalism, whatever, video, audio. Um, and basically, so it, just submit a work that you have done at some point if you were under the, a, a black creative under the age of 21 and email it to scholarship at armchairallamericans.com and we will review them all over the summer and then dole uh, two $500 scholarships out to uh, kids uh, before their fall semester. Andrew Stevens, big things happening over there. Go check them out. This was fun as always, dude. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Rip. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Appreciate it. All right, later, that, that was good stuff. And that was Andrew Stevens. Always appreciate his time. I just kind of call him up whenever I need to BS about uh, SEC football or something. He's got an interesting perspective. He's from Baton Rouge. Family of LSU, diehard LSU fans and uh, some A&M fans, and then he actually went to school at Georgia. So he's got a lot of the SEC footprint uh, covered, but uh, always an interesting interview. Go check him out at Armchair Media. Um, they're doing some pretty cool things over there. One of the things we discussed is just some random notes that you and I will hit before we get out of here, is that we were talking about the uh, kind of the outsider's view of uh, the Egg Bowl, and it was exactly what you know I expected. I was just like, "Hey, what are your thoughts on the Egg Bowl?" And it was basically kind of just like you know, uh, you know, seven o'clock at night on Thanksgiving. Let's pour something stout and watch this just terrible debauchery take place, which is probably not the branding you want if you're each athletic director. But unfortunately, that is what this has become. Two outsiders across the country. Yeah, it, it is. Um, 
It is pretty sad. And, um, I, you know, people always ask, well, how can we fix it? Or it's never going to be fixed or, or whatever. Um, In short, stop giving a shit about what the other side does. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Until that one day a year. Um, no, but Rip, you were at war every day. Ah, so. just... That kind of mindset is why this will never change, but we've discussed that ad nauseum before. I mean, it's, it's nothing nothing new or revolutionary there. And, and what will change it, honestly, is if both teams are good. Um, but you couldn't because, even, you had a taste of that in 14 and 15, and guess what? It all came crashing down. It did. It did uh, partially because of... Um, I mean, Hugh Freeze wasn't ready for the big time. He, he just, he wasn't. He wasn't ready for it. And, and also, you had a highly motivated uh, group of people. It wasn't just one. It was a, a handful of people that were highly motivated for various reasons, some of which directly involved Hugh Freeze not being ready for the big time um, that tore it down. But I think if you got more consistent winning, maybe people would stop just only focusing on that because there are other things to play for. Like Ohio State and Michigan is a big-time rivalry. No, they're not in the same state, so the Iron Bowl is probably a, a better thing. But Ohio State and Michigan are two programs that win a lot, win a lot of games. They have Big Ten championship aspirations, so they don't spend the year worried about what the other is doing. Yeah, they're rivals and, and whatnot, but Ohio State's not thinking about Michigan today. Uh, Auburn and Alabama, same thing. Uh, they win more, so yes, they care about each other a lot and there are some fans in the state of Alabama that are insane but it's not their sole focus anymore because they have more important things to play for I've noticed that in in the state I grew up in with Clemson I mean that that rivalry has just really kind of died down as far as just the the energy I mean when I was younger it was very similar to the Egg Bowl because neither program was really worth the shit and so all they really had was that game against each other now, I mean, Clemson's playing for something bigger. South Carolina's not. But it feels like that kind of tone has gone away because Clemson's not worried about South Carolina anymore. They're worried about trying to make a, another ACC championship and, and winning a title. And if you look at the news today, worried about uh, a former assistant coach that used a racial slur to a player and didn't get punished for it. Um, but maybe that'll do it. Maybe it'll just take winning a little bit more than they already do and people will realize that this is not the only game that matters. Um, I think Lane Kiffin's recruiting approach may help some. And I don't know what Mike Leach's recruiting approach is going to be just yet as far as that goes, but it, it certainly feels like Lane Kiffin just doesn't care uh, about mis owning Mississippi. I mean, you're not going to see any Mississippi-made hashtags uh, around here anymore. It just doesn't seem like that's something that he cares about, and he shouldn't, by the way. Uh, it's not a big deal that he doesn't want to recruit in-state kids just because they're from the state of Mississippi. Your job is to win, and, and it's to build the best roster you can, not to build a fence around your state. It's to build a roster however you can to get the most competitive team that you can field. Uh, but that may help some, too, because there's just fewer recruiting battles going on between the two schools within the state because at least one of the uh, the coaches involved uh, don't necessarily care about that anymore. So maybe that'll do it. 
another thing we kind of went towards was uh, the or, or like the West. Unfortunately, is kind of feels like it's devolving back to Alabama and then everyone else with everything LSU lost. I know I was recruiting at a high level, but you lose both coordinators essentially with Brady and then uh, and then Dave Aranda. You lose all of those starters. Like it, it would be it would be kind of crazy for not them not to consider to take a step back or to at least not think they will take a step back, I should say. I don't really buy Auburn as much, and I don't buy Texas A&M as competing with Alabama. So, unfortunately, it feels like it's Alabama and everyone else again. But this is kind of interesting to where, like, this is a year where, like, if Orgeron goes, like, 10-2 and two and goes, like, Fiesta Bowl, national title Fiesta Bowl, that's a three-year stretch that only, like, two or three programs are doing. So, like, he has a chance to where, like, you might actually, like, figure out more about him as a coach and a program builder this year than you did last year which sounds crazy to say because it was you know one of the greatest seasons you've ever seen in college football but like does he become louisiana's favorite son or like oh he'll he will always be that obviously for kind of what they did last year but like he has a chance to take it to a level uh that that would be like him having a statue in every town in louisiana in every swamp in Louisiana, we kind of basically boiled it down to, as you heard earlier, uh, is like the scale of Gene Chizik to Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban. Like he's probably going to fall somewhere in the middle. And where does he fall? I think you'll probably begin to see that this year. Yeah. And that's not unfair. Uh, I know some people um, in the state of Louisiana don't exactly like that line of thinking, but this, this season is a huge test for him. I think he can prove more this year. This might be a hot take, but whatever. I think he can prove more this year than he did last year. Because if they turn around, and let's say they win 10 games, I think that's, that's more proof that he's arrived and he's a mainstay. Like to what you're saying, that, that he has arrived, that he will be here for a while, that he's perpetually going to compete at a high level, and that he can do what Nick Saban has had to do, which is lose everybody and keep winning at the highest level. You mentioned, I mean, he lost his, his offensive coordinator. He lost his quarterback. Damn near everybody on the team, a bunch of support staff, lost Dave Aranda, he lost all these people. And if even though they've recruited well, and that's part of coaching, uh, if they can find a way to like really compete, finish second in the West or something like that, win 10 games, I think that says just as much about Ed Orgeron as it did last year. Because it shows that he can lose everything and keep winning at the highest level. And only really... Nick Saban has done that because if you look at what Dabo Sweeney's done, that staff, I know he's lost some offensive coordinators here or there, but largely intact. That's what's impressive about him is he doesn't really lose anybody. It's really been his program and the same people kind of throughout the process. Nick Saban loses people all the time and he keeps winning. So Ed Orgeron just lost everything. And if he keeps winning, I think that says just as much. this year as it did last year to me. I would agree with that as well. So that was kind of some SEC. It was interesting. It was refreshing to talk like SEC football because it's going to be an interesting year in the sense that like, like the main storylines going into this year is going to be the logistics of playing football as opposed to what happens on the field, which might be kind of not a good thing, but it's definitely going to be different because most of the storylines are predictable every year with SEC football. It's like who's challenging Alabama for the West. And like, is this Tennessee's year? Like the the SEC football storylines are also always often so incredibly predictable. But this is a year where you actually kind of have some interesting ones, and it's going to uh, kind of get overshadowed by, hey, are we going to have football? Like, not hey, are we going to have football? Hey, what is this going to look like? And it's uh, that's going to be a fascinating dynamic as we get into J- July and August. 
Yeah, I'm I am increasingly optimistic. And I did see that Oklahoma State, for example, had a handful of players that tested positive for coronavirus. And um, isn't that a good thing? And now hear me out. No, it's not good that young people have coronavirus, but all of them were asymptomatic. Isn't it good that we're finding out now? And being able to address it now as opposed to later on. I just, everybody, and people are making jokes about Oklahoma State because of what Mike Gundy said. Of course they are, and they kind of deserve it. But um, isn't it a good thing, though, to know that, one, these guys are asymptomatic, which is great, but, two, they can address it right away in June instead of in August? Yeah, I mean, it's basically kind of giving you a period to gauge just how widespread this is and this is what is going to be and kind of gives you some time to to kind of see if this protocol works and if this is... Uh, yeah, and they tested 150 people. Like, Oklahoma State football had 150 people tested. Uh, and they had... Let's see if I can find it right here. Um, I've lost it. So I think it was 150 people, and three of them tested positive. Well, that's a really good thing. It's a very small number. The positives were expected, but now you can figure out what your protocols are going to be because now you have an active experience to do it and the numbers aren't widespread. I just, you don't want people getting sick and it doesn't sound like they are actually sick, but at least the numbers are small and they can learn by experience on how to deal with it if it comes up later on. I agree. So I, this is going to be interesting to watch unfold for the next little bit. I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly. Like, like it'll be interesting to see if these protocols hold up and they're able to kind of get to through all this, get to fall camp and kind of have a system in place. But like, what happens if one of these kids like tests? Like, if, what happens if Kellen Mond tests positive in, in in September before they go play? Like, Cle- I guess they don't play Clemson this year. But you get my point. Like, yeah. What, <laughs> What happens if if Mac Jones tests positive before they go play Georgia in Week Three? Like that, like you hope that doesn't happen. But I just wonder, like, what what is like? Is there any incentive not to bend the protocol when it's a star player? Because I think the NBA put that in place. To where NBA's professional sports, it would be found out and you would lose your job. To where there's always this veil of secrecy in college sports, and you just hope none of that happens. Yeah, I hope so. Um, that could that if that got exposed, I mean, the program gets shut down, right? Like if somebody was suppressing positive tests and they kept playing football, they get shut down, don't they? I mean, you would hope. But like, there's no there's no punishment system that makes any sense in this sport. So like, how can you say for certain? You think, but I don't know. I I think that that would be my answer is that you would get the death penalty. My goodness, if paying players gets you the death penalty, suppressing positive tests during a global pandemic should, in the name of football, should get you shut down as well. Yeah, I agree. So I don't know. I think that's about all we had for today. Uh, long show, uh, quality show. We'll be uh, Borky and I will be on radio, Sports Talk Mississippi, three to six p.m. Monday through Friday. As always, we'll have mailbag Friday this Friday. Get your questions in. Uh, tweet us, text us, email us, whatever, uh, 
whatever ways you get them in, please send us your questions. If you're listening to this, I have the numbers. I know people listen to this. The amount of questions we get versus listeners is absurd. It can be anything, but we just need the content or would like the content, I should say. So send us in your questions, please. Save the people's holiday. Um, remind you one more time before we get out of here. Uh, go check out LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Cannot recommend that place enough. If you're into grilling, if you want to get a quality piece of meat, you've got to go check out Greg. They'll hook you up over there. Steaks, custom cuts, delicious sausages of all kinds. He's got all kinds of stuff over there. You just got to go check it out for yourself. I promise it's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Wouldn't recommend it if I didn't use it quite often. It is absolutely incredible. Oxford's lucky to have it. Go check out Greg, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Borky, I'll see you this afternoon. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back at it on Friday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.